All right. Uh, Anissa, welcome to the Evidently Legal Podcast. We're thrilled to have you on today. Thank you for uh, inviting me on today. No, I, absolutely. Um, you know, I'd, I'd love to, to start by learning you know, more about you and your firm. You know, I know you do criminal defense work in Chicago, but maybe you could tell us a little bit about you know, your background, your career in the law and sort of what your firm looks like today. Yeah, so um, I opened my firm back in November of 2015, just prior uh, to opening my firm. I worked for the Cook County State's Attorney's Office here in Chicago for six years. And then in November of 2015, started to strike out on my own. Um, I'm a solo practitioner. I don't uh, have any other associates. Um, it's me doing the, the lion's share of the work. Um, there are a number of things that led me to starting the firm. Number one uh, was family dynamics. I had just had twins in November or May of 2014. I needed a lot more flexibility. So that was part of it. And then having the experience um, on the prosecution side of criminal DUI and traffic cases, I naturally said, hey, you know, I, I kind of know what, what the prosecution is looking for in a case. I could use some of that experience to now transfer over to uh, defense work and still doing the same kind of law. But from the other side, it gives me a really unique perspective because I've been on both sides. Uh, so that's kind of what kind of hit it, every, started everything off. Yeah. Yeah. And so so did you go to the Cook County Prosecutor's Office right, right out of law school? That was the first place you started? I did. I graduated uh, from DePaul University College of Law in May of 2009. I had interned there um, from... Uh, June of 2008 until I graduated. And then I took the bar in July of 2009, started in November of 2009. And so uh, that was my first job out of law school and was there the entire six years. Started uh, the way the state's attorney's office at least worked at that time. Um, you went through different divisions. So I started in what would be our misdemeanor division, first municipal district, where you go to different misdemeanor courthouses within the Chicago area. There's primarily six. And then you go to what was called your second assignment. So usually that would be either um, a suburb where you're going to do a little bit of misdemeanors. As you uh, continue on, you would then go into a preliminary hearing room, grand jury, do some of the more serious cases, and then uh, on from there. Got it. Yeah, we, we, we took the we both took the July 2009 bar exam. We were yeah. sitting at the same time through, I yes. guess, uh, memorable experience, maybe is one way to put it, but an experience nonetheless. Yes. Um, got it. So so your time at the Cook County Prosecutor's Office, you know, I, obviously that you did a lot of different things there. Uh, I'm sure it was very, very hands on on your feet in the courtroom. You know, what mm -hmm. do you think the, the biggest you know skill or learning you took away from your time at the Cook County Prosecutor's Office? So you kind of just mentioned it, that probably the biggest is being able to think on my feet. A lot of times we had just very large caseloads. And to be honest, just because we're human, there are just not enough hours in the day. Sometimes you didn't get a chance to focus as much on the cases as I get to do now as a defense attorney, just because there were so many. So you need to be able to read the information quickly, have a good understanding of what the law is in a particular area, for, uh, for instance, in DUIs. You got to have a good, solid understanding of how those work, what are the evidence, what are the cross-examination questions that are probably going to be asked in every single question. So being able to think on my feet. Also, another skill is being able to work with a variety of people and personnel in a court system. You cannot underestimate that skill because you have, you know, judges and, and, and uh, court clerks and court reporters, 
uh, at that time, private defense counsel. And, and these, again, are all people with different types of personalities. So being able to um, deal with those different type of people, including the victims, uh, for various seriousness of cases, that was probably another big skill that I that I gained from that experience, just being able to work with different people and, and being able to adapt to different personalities um, from the judge on down to the victims and everybody in between. Yeah, I, I mean, and it's interesting, right? I mean, you know, how much of that came naturally to you, Riggs? I think a lot of people might say, you know, when they go into a field of law, or they're thinking about a particular field of law, they think, well, you know, I'm, I'm not a great public speaker, or I'm not great you know, on my feet or quick enough on my feet, or, you know, maybe I'm not quite a, a people person. And, I, you know, talking to folks who, who have done a lot of this work, um, and some of it myself, you know, that's not always the case that you're just naturally a people person or naturally great on your feet. I'd love to hear about you know your experience and, and whether it did come naturally for you or whether it's something you learned over time through just doing the work. Yeah, I think it would be a mix of both. Uh, number one, I think because I like people and I like talking to people in general, I think that helped me to be able to uh, learn and adapt to it more quickly just because I like people. But it was hard. And what I often tell people is when I go into a courtroom um, setting, it's like a different person shows up. Um, but I'm actually a very shy person. I'm very sometimes can be very nervous, but when I step into court, it's just like a whole nother person takes over and I'm just able to transform. And so sometimes I can't even replicate it. If I'm not in the courtroom, I often tell people like, I wish I could replicate it for you now, but I can't because it's the pressure of the courtroom. It's that whole environment that helps me just to um, transform, if that makes sense. I know it sounds kind of weird when I tell people, but sometimes I feel as though I am outside of myself watching myself. Um, it's particularly if, if I have a jury, for example, those are probably the most uh, nerve wracking experiences. You have 12 people who are looking at you and you've got to, you know, you've got to appear confident. You've got to appear like you know what you're talking about. Um, one thing I like to do in juries all the time is the pregnant silence. You know, it takes a lot of strength to do that, to not just say anything. And I like to do a lot of my trials with that because it gets attention to to just sit there in silence and ask a question and look every single person in the eye, but that can be quite nerve wracking, but yeah. it's kind of like a, a game plan. I just got to get ready for it. So. Yeah. I, I mean, it's, it's, yeah, you hear that actually a lot in, in sports, right? I mean, I, when you said you yeah. sort of feel like a, almost a different person in the courtroom, right? I mean, it reminds me of hearing folks like Kobe Bryant or, you know, Serena Williams or others who are, you may not, realize they're actually like very nice and, and pretty calm and, and friendly people off the court. But when they get on the court, uh, and in Kobe's case, when he used to get on the court, right, it was, they were mean, they were tough, right? I mean, they were tough competitors. And so it's, I was it's, going it's, to it say sounds that. a lot like that. Yeah. yeah. I was going to say that, Brian, I was like, it's kind of like how sports people talk. Even sometimes my clients even say that my voice gets deeper. Even it's just, it's just, a yeah, it's kind of, kind of game mode. So yeah. I mean, it's not a game, the 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 practice, but just kind of like a game of mentality. Yeah, especially in the courtroom, right, where it, it is a bit of theatrics and performance, right? I mean, there's, you know, difficult mm -hmm. legal work that needs to get done. And then the other side of that is, you know, projecting and, and getting people to interpret your case the way you want them to. And so, you know, I think for folks, you know, listening, right, I mean, it's kind of an interesting takeaway where, you know, if, if maybe you don't feel like you're the most gregarious person in the world who always commands a room just in your day-to-day, -day, 
doesn't necessarily mean you can't turn that on and learn that skill to utilize it in a courtroom. And you seem like a great case in point there. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, on the challenges side, so Cook County Prosecutor's Office, obviously, you know, you learned a lot of great skills there. What do you think was the most challenging coming out of that experience? Hmm. Well, there are a number of things. I'll just highlight a couple. Number one, you don't realize, or at least I didn't realize at the time, that the prosecutor, at least in the criminal justice uh, area, is the most powerful person in the courtroom. Um, A lot of people think it's the judge. And the judge, of course, does have a lot of power, but the judge doesn't bring the charges. The police have a lot of power in that instance in that they make the arrest, but they can't prosecute the case. Only the prosecutor has the power to drop charges, add charges, give the offers, so I, I guess I coming out in, in defense, you do have some power, but definitely not that. You're kind of more in a reaction kind of state as opposed to um, being able to, to, to control the charges and what's going on. Another thing, a lot of times the prosecutors do still have a lot of, um, uh, I think prosecutors as a whole are still seen as the people who are carrying the white flag. And as a defense attorney, you're kind of looked at as not in that same kind of way. So it was it was kind of strange being in that second position now from being a prosecutor for six years, having the utmost respect from the society and um, from the judges and just that benefit of you're doing the right thing. You don't necessarily get that Um, as a criminal defense attorney. When I was a prosecutor, I, I remember telling people that when I would meet them on the street and they always thought that was really great. But sometimes when you tell people you're a criminal defense attorney, you know, they're like, oh, you know, how can you represent those people? And there's a lot of judgment sometimes about that. And a lot, a lot of misunderstanding as well about what a criminal defense attorney does and his or her role. And so that would be one of the things that I think probably was the most challenging about about doing that and not having that 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 um, that thing that you're you're doing the right thing. Yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, like, I, I, that, that's all, like you say, I mean, that, as, as an attorney, right, you, you know, all the different dynamics in the industry, yes. how folks think about it. Um, and, you know, now you've kind of moved from being a prosecutor to a defense attorney. Um, and I know you've got, you know, I, 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 on your website, you have a really like moving video and story as to mm-hmm. why you became a defense attorney. Mm-hmm. And as somebody who has been a prosecutor and has now moved over to the other side, I'd love for you to tell folks why you became a defense attorney and what it means to you. Yeah. So um, like you said, on my website, there's, that's the whole story uh, there. But I'll just briefly, I have a stepbrother who very young, when he was maybe like 19 or 20 years old, got into some trouble um, with the criminal justice system. And uh, during that process, I was I was pretty young. So I was a teenager. And one of the um, it was very serious char- charges, they were murder charges, so very serious charges. Um, and so at the time, again, I was pretty young. I don't think I quite understood the gravity of the entire situation just, just because I didn't, I was pretty young. But one thing I do remember most of all is, uh, my stepfather, my mom, and then my stepfather's mother being very stressed about not really knowing what is going on. Right. They, they're, um, they had not been in this position before. And so a lot of times, um, one of the things I shared in the video was I remember specifically uh, my mom and my stepdad crying about he was going to be in, in prison uh, for the rest of his life. They would never see him free again. And again, like I said, I was young. This is many years ago. You're not thinking about your parents dying. But what's unfortunate is really literally my stepdad, my mom and my stepbrother's own mother all passed 
and he and he's still in jail all these years later. And he is going to be 45, I think, this year. So he's been in wow. since he was 19 years old. And so uh, he was a very nice person. But because of the charges that he was charged with, it, it's kind of he's reduced to that. You know, no one know, knows his side of the story or where, what, no, what were the circumstances. He just had that label. And so as a defense attorney, one thing that I try to do is be a go between between myself and the family. A lot of times, uh, a lot of times people say, well, you know, um, well, this person, sorry, this person is just bad or, but everybody thinks that until it's their brother or their sister or their uncle or their father. Now they're saying, oh, well, he did this. He took me to, they want you to know all the good things about their person. And so for the majority of cases, I have not personally had any cases where there wasn't a story behind that, that this person was more than just what they were charged with. In fact, my motto at the Jordan Law Firm is we re represent people charged with criminal offenses. A lot of times people are labeled to whatever they're charged with, but these are all people. And some of us um, have been in a position that we haven't had to be in circumstances that led us to certain situations. And I often just encourage people to kind of think about, but if it was your brother or your son, is that the same kind of look you would want us to have on your son or your daughter? You would want us to look at them as a whole person, as a person who made a mistake. And so that's something that I keep in mind and I go with every day when I'm representing individuals. Yeah, I, I think it's easy in in the context of law and legal issues to just think everything's black and white, right? Yes. You know, there, this is the law. You're on the right side or the wrong side of it. And mm -hmm. as a legal matter, that you know that that may be true, but typically wrapped around that, really, frankly, in almost every single case, mm -hmm. is much broader context that that people don't often see. Um, the backstory behind it, as you say, who, who they are as a person, the impact, frankly, some of this stuff can have uh, on families and situations broader than than just the individual. You know, how, how often do you see in in your case? you know, the, the impact that it has, uh, whether it's on a family member or somebody beyond just the individual who may be, may be charged in the particular instance? Um, well, besides, you know, the, the alleged victims in the case, obviously it has an uh, impact on them. But a lot of times I, I get a lot of cases through the parents of, of clients. So a mom or a dad, or sometimes a grandparent in a lot of situations. Um, a lot of times there's questions, they have questions about what did they do wrong? You know, what, maybe they did something that they weren't supposed to do. Um, these, if they have younger siblings, to have that person out of the house that maybe they looked up to, that can have a huge impact on their lives. Um, and then there's a lot of collateral consequences that people don't think about. For example, one of the things I do uh, is expungements and sealings, and that's to, um, to erase or seal someone's criminal background. I had a case, in fact, more, more recently where an individual um, had some significant background, but in the last 10 years, they have really done a lot. They've gotten their you know, degrees, they've you know, bought a house, they've done all these things um, and they wanna move on with their life. However, this, this history is still following them. So they did all the classes, got ready to take their real estate exam, but you can't have any criminal background. And so now they did all that and they can't move forward. And so it's kind of, a cycle like okay i'm trying to change my life i'm trying to rehabilitate which is what we're supposed to be doing in our system i won't go into a whole separate thing about that but it's sure. not just a punishment thing there's also like hey let's restore this person to be a useful person in society but that follows them forever a lot of times and so 
Um, in this particular case, you know, we tried to get an expungement, but the judge still didn't want to let it go because of the past, even though they had made all these changes and all this work to move forward. So um, I think that's probably the collateral consequences that are beyond any jail time after you get out. It can be really hard for people and put them in a cycle where they still can't get out and sometimes will reoffend because they do need a job, They but they can't get a job if no one will hire them because of the background, but they have to eat. They have to do all these things. So I would say that's where I would see the most impact is not allowing the person to return to society. Um, that would probably be the biggest thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's an area that you say touches. So not only sort of people's lives, right. The, the, the individual who has been charged, the alleged victims, their families and, and, and really their lives going forward on both sides of, of the aisle. You know, it's, it's an area of law that I, I think is, is um, requires a lot of skill as an attorney, but also seemingly requires a lot of empathy and ability to handle context and gray areas you know how, how important has developing that skill been to you in in your career right that's a good point i always often tell people this is not the line of work if you're a judgmental person because you have to be able to um you have to be able to see the person and not just the crime that they're you know charged with and sometimes people are innocent too let me say that too of the crime they're charged with but um that is paramount if you're going to do this type of work. If you're in a judgmental place, this is not the line of work for you. And so I'm, I think I haven't really had to cultivate that a lot just because I was kind of raised that way. My mom and dad kind of raised us to just you know, treat people like they were like they're people. So whether they were um, janitors cleaning up floors or they were a CEO, whoever, treat people like people and not judge them based off what they do for a living and where they come from. So that was actually easy for me just because in my personal life. I'm not saying I'm perfect at it, but I think I'm I'm better than most when it comes to because I don't want to be judged like that. I don't want to be judged for every bad thing that I've ever done. Um, I you know I want to be looked at in a holistic way, and so that's what I do when I approach clients and have clients with me is try to look at them in a holistic way and try to understand their perspective and to try to bring that forward to the court or to the prosecutor um, when I'm dealing with these cases. Yeah, I, I mean, again, it's it's I, I can tell just through your voice and speaking to you that 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 comes out right, and it's it's so important. You know, I, I think it, in the area of law that you practice, right? They're they're obviously weighty issues, right? And so they're they're important issues. They have a major impact. It, it seems like you, you got to really have a strong reason, you know, to do this type of work to to really sort of do it and do it successfully. You know, in your practice, what do you think has been the most rewarding part of your work so far? Um, I think the most rewarding part of my work is being able to be a guide for people through the criminal justice system. It's a lot. Sometimes we take it for granted when we work in it all the time. Sometimes I even do, you know, the, the whole thing is very intimidating. When you walk into the courtroom and you're charged with a criminal offense, a DUI offense, which is criminal here in Illinois. I know in some states it's not, but it's criminal here. Um, there's a, there's a lot of judgment. Right. And you feel like everybody's against you, you know, the prosecutors against you. Maybe the judge is not on your side. They should be unbiased, but <laughs> sometimes we don't always get that. Everybody's not on your side. So it feels really good to go in kind of as a as a warrior or a, 
or, or a shield or a protector to say, hey, you at least got this one person who knows this system that can be the go-between between this system and you, your protector. I often tell my clients like, hey, I know you're stressed. I know you're worried, but that's why you hired me. Let me stress and worry about what we're going to do. You know, um, you've hired me. Trust me. I'm going to do the best that I can for you. So I think that's probably the most rewarding. I've you know gotten hugs, tears, um, told I should never... Stop doing this line of work. Um, I would say that would be the most rewarding professionally for me doing this type of work. Yeah. Now, and and look, I think obviously those those you know rewards are are, are quite clear. And I can see you know how that would kind of drive you forward to continue on with this work. I think the flip side of that is there's got to be a lot of challenges as well. And so you know mm-hmm. what what are some of the the big challenges that you know you've experienced? Not just experience, but but how do you sort of overcome them or or, or learn to deal with them as you, you continue on with your work? Yeah, I would say um, one of the challenges is, you know, we've got a lot of law shows and you got a lot of um, <laughs> big celebrities who go uh, on trial on TV. And so everybody's expecting that. Um, they're, everybody's expecting uh, some big aha moment. Most criminal cases are not like that. They're not big aha moments. A lot of times, too, people don't realize, uh, like you hear the thing that people say, well, it's just because we don't have the money. And there is actually a small part of that that's true. It's not necessarily about your ability as a lawyer, but it costs money to get a DNA expert. So sure, I could get a DNA expert for you to say, hey, this something's wrong with this DNA, or I can get someone who could challenge the breath, uh, breath uh, analysis that was done for you in a DUI but that costs money. So a lot of times people say, well, you know, this lawyer is better because they can get these people off, but it depends on where, who are they representing and do those individuals have money to hire these experts? If they don't, then I have to do the best that I can with the limited resources and just kind of use the evidence and, you know, your testimony and what I've uncovered. So I think that's very challenging. Just a lot of people um, managing expectations, I would say managing expectations of the outcome of the case, managing expectations of me and the limits of what, you know, I can do as an attorney. I don't know. I don't make the laws. So, you know, sometimes you get people whether the law shouldn't be this or it should. I agree. But at this point, at least in my career, I'm not making the laws. And I have to operate within the system that, that we have. And sometimes I agree with them. Hey, that's not a fair law. You know, there probably are some other biases that are at play here, but this is kind of where we're at. How can we navigate to get you the best outcome giving the current landscape that we're in. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I noticed something you said at this point, you're not making the laws. Do, do you have uh, a- ambitions to maybe make some broader change in the industry? Uh, I can tell you've got a, a, a lot of ideas that are that are you know behind some of the things that you're saying that could really maybe improve things and help folks uh, find themselves in a better place. Yeah, you know, I do. I think, you know, one of the things, and not to get too off target, is, you know, a lot of our laws are made um, a lot of people worry about the national elections. And I think, you know, I vote in every single election, no matter whether it's about that's, you know, should the water, you know, should we, you know, run water between 6 p.m. and 8 p.m. up to the national elections. But a lot of people don't realize how important it is to vote in your local elections because the chances of what happens in Washington, D.C. having an impact on you as an individual is very slim. Yeah. But your local, who you choose as a prosecutor for your local county, um, who you chose to choose as a governor, who you chose as your uh, council or alderman, wherever you live, they have more impact on what's going to happen with you. Who's your sheriff? Um, these are the people who are going to impact you. So I definitely at some point want to get more involved in 
um, not running for election myself, but definitely uh, supporting those people who have those dreams and kind of getting out there and doing a little more, uh, uh, getting that that message out about how important that is if you really want to see system uh, changes on a local level. The the federal government only could do so much. They're, they're representing the whole United States of America. So they've got a lot of things to think about. We're not all the same uh, throughout the country. You really want to focus on what your state and your, you know, your local city or village or whatever it's doing. So I definitely want to have more impact that way. Yeah, it's it's so true, right? I mean, you know, at the national level, right? Obviously, there there's broad sort of macro and systemic mm-hmm. changes and and policy, but you know, if you want to see an immediate impact in your day to day life, right? I mean, you're so right. Look no further than you know your local election or your your town or your city prosecutor or mayor or supervisor, whatever it may be called in your area. Um, it's it's so true. You know, I think one thing I'd I'd love to ask you is. You know, obviously, as as attorneys, right, we're sort of well versed in, especially in in criminal law, right. You got the prosecutor; they have to prove their case beyond a reasonable doubt. As a defense attorney, you know, your job is to zealously defend your client, make sure the the prosecutor, you know, is put to their proof of their burden mm-hmm. of proof, right. Um, and you know, I think that that can sort of result in, at least in my mind, maybe multiple definitions of success for you in a case. Mm-hmm. And so I'd love to hear, you know, for you and your work as a criminal defense attorney, what success looks like for you at the end of a case. Success for me looks like, you know, when I have every every client come in, I ask them, what is it that you're hoping to see in this case? You know, what, how are you hoping to resolve? How do you want this to impact your future and not impact your future? I think you have to start with that question first. Some people say, you know, uh, hey, I'm, de- you know, I am guilty of this crime. You know, I did do it. It was a bad decision. I just want to... Um, make sure I can get the best sentence possible or I don't want to go to jail. So anytime that I am, I, I kind of set that as my, as my goal. What is it that they want at the end of the day, at the end of this case? Um, if they're saying, hey, I, I definitely did not do this. You know, I, I, I want to fight this. Then we're going to trial. It's really led by the client. A lot of times you'll hear, sometimes I'll get people say, uh, well, you know, my lawyer may be guilty well for one we can't do there there's all there's all kinds of protections within the system before someone takes a plea that ensures that it's their decision and their decision alone but really i really start there just asking them what is it that they want and then that's going to be my marker of success whether or not i can get them that outcome most of the time i can't sometimes you know the evidence and maybe their background um i may not get them exactly what they what they want but I'm still usually able to get them better than what they would be getting if they're doing it alone. Um, so I say that's that that's how I kind of measure my successes. Did I get that for them? And did they feel like I fought for them, even in cases where maybe we didn't get what they wanted? Um, I've had clients say, hey, you know, I know, you know the evidence wasn't uh, really in my favor, but I want to pre- I want to tell you I appreciate you fighting for me and working so hard for me. And so I think that's the success as well when we may not get the outcome that we wanted, but the person recognized that, hey, I put forth my best effort. I made the most passionate arguments that I could possibly make. And um, and sometimes it just it just doesn't work out, you know, the way we we wanted wanted it yeah. to work out. Yeah, it, look, I think that that definition of success t- to me, it sort of really fits very nicely and neatly with sort of your theme as a practice, right? That you represent people first who yeah. are accused of crimes 
Um, and, and it seems, seems like to me hearing you, right. If you put that first and you focus on what the client wants and really try to, you know, do the best you can towards that outcome, you know, you're going to, not only is it a great relationship between you and the client, but more often than not, you're going to end up in, in a good place. You know, how, yes. how important has that kind of, I guess, motto is maybe not the right word, but theme and way of working to you. How important has that been to uh, your work over time? Uh, it's been very important. I mean, I think that's when you get referrals from, from, from clients, right. Is when they walk away feeling like you fought for them. Um, and, and I know we'll probably talk about this more later, but you know, that that's important to leave a good taste in, in people's mouth, regardless of the outcome of the case, because that's what's going to help your business continue to flourish as you continue to practice. I'll be doing uh, this for seven. I've been an attorney for almost 13 years, but been practicing my own firm for uh, seven years in November. So, uh, no referrals, very important, very important. Sometimes I'll have people in far off places that I don't go to, for example, and I say, hey, look, you know, I can give you a referral for an attorney, but because they've been referred and they trust the person so much that referred them, they'll pay the more money just to have me because whoever referred them, they trust them so much. So I've had people pay, you know, more money just, just to have me because they trust the referral uh, that they are the person who referred them to me. Yeah. Yeah. And look, it's good work sort of begets, you know, more business, right. As you say, sort yes. of the, you know, your, your reputation name starts to get out there. And I, I love to talk a little bit about, you know, the business side of law. I mean, we talked about you as mm -hmm. a defense attorney and that, that in and of itself seems like more than a job for one person. I mean, it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's incredible. Um, you know, what, what you get done and what you do. But you also need to, as a solo in particular, run a firm and run a business, right? You're an mm -hmm. entrepreneur. And, you know, I know you started at the Cook County Prosecutor's Office. You opened your own firm, I think, right out of the, the Cook County Prosecutor's Office. I did. Uh, as a defense firm. So presumably you didn't come with any clients. Um, I and did so, not. <laughs> you know, we'd, we'd love for you to tell your story, right? What, are the, what did months one to three look for you opening your firm when you decided to make that decision? Yeah, so months one to three were very challenging for sure. Um, because like you said, I'm coming from the state's attorney's office, so I certainly didn't have any clients lined up because again, the nature of what we're doing, I'm a prosecutor. So um, you, I, you know, I wouldn't be representing criminal defendants. I would be prosecuting them. So I didn't have anything already in the books. But I do think, um, so it, it was very challenging. I think what helped me though, and this is important for people to, to know, is that you never know what, when I first became a prosecutor, I never really thought maybe I would go into criminal defense in my own practice, right? Um, but it's important that the relationships you make with the other side. So I was a prosecutor that at that time it would have been criminal defense attorneys. Those relationships helped me out tremendously because at least here in Illinois, sometimes if an attorney has a conflict, he'll call another attorney to cover a case uh, for him or her. So that helped me a lot in that when these defense attorneys learned that now I was a defense attorney, if they had a conflict, they contacted me to cover a case for them. And it wasn't big money, but you know, usually the going rate was like 150 and usually you're going in there saying, hey, I'm Anissa Jordan, I'm here for such and such attorney, he or she needs a date. Um, you get five of those maybe in a week and you're doing you know, pretty well. I didn't have a lot of overhead at the beginning. I started with, um, when I first started, I started with uh, renting the conference room in an office suite. So that's, you know, I, that I, you know, I was not in a position to have an, an office of any kind. 
Um, I did have a cell phone and I had a Squarespace website that a friend built for me. Um, and that was pretty much it. I kept my overhead low, very low at the beginning. But another thing that helped me too, there was an attorney uh, that I worked with, again, when I was a prosecutor and we had a very contentious case with one another. But at the end of that case, and this would have been maybe like around 2010, so five years before I left out on my own, um, he told me how he appreciated how I treated him during that case. So fast forward, he finds out these five years later that he's not even doing criminal defense anymore. He's doing real estate work. And so he started sending all his criminal defense cases to me. And it was all because of the relationship and how I treated him when we were on opposite sides. And so I, I can't underscore that enough. It's just a side note. If you're in this situation is that, I mean, you should be, you know, try to be as nice as you can just, you know, generally, but from a business sense, that helped me a lot because had I been a mean prosecutor or a disrespectful prosecutor to the defense bar when I was one, um, then they would have shunned me. And quite honestly, you need that community to support you. And so I was a, I was a, um, when I was a prosecutor, you know, I really did my job and I did the best that I could, but I also was, uh, someone that you could work with and someone that was understanding. So I think that helped me a lot, but it was still very bleak. <laughs> I would say for those first few months. Yeah. I mean, look, it sounds like you know, treating folks like people isn't just important, obviously in your client relationship, yeah. but in your professional growth and development. Right? I think the, the, the common theme, maybe it is from TV shows or movies, right? Is that, you know, prosecution versus defense or, you know, plaintiff, versus defendant, you know, is just a total burn the bridges type right. atmosphere, right? Where it's just win at all costs. And, you know, I think I found over my career, and it sounds like you have as well, that you can zealously advocate for your yes. clients, do a great job, but also still treat the other side like like people as well at the same time. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And it sounds like that's been important to, to the growth of your firm, which is which is amazing. Um, so, so months one to uh, zero to three or one to three, right? So uh, leaning on you know, referrals or relationships that you developed over time, you know, how did your practice grow um, from there? It, has it been keeping to uh, maintaining those relationships and developing them further? Has it been, you know, other avenues to try to grow your practice and get your name out there? I mean, how did, how did months, I guess, four to 12 go right and, and beyond How did the growth happen? Yeah, definitely maintaining those uh, relationships, becoming more involved in the legal community in terms of our bar associations. I know a lot, with, especially with some of the younger lawyers now, there's been an issue with people not joining our bar associations anymore because they don't see the, the worth of them. Like, why am I spending this money? And it can get quite expensive, you know, as you join more and more. But these relationships don't all, knowing that those relationships don't always pay back immediately, right? It might be in year three, someone you met in year one um, sends you the biggest case or sends you something. So definitely getting more involved in my bar association. So for me, um, I was very active uh, in some of our regional bar associations. Um, I was and am very active in our Illinois State Bar Association and committees, getting to know lawyers. They even practice in my area, but maybe they don't practice up here. Maybe they practice in Southern Illinois. I'm in Illinois. They practice in Southern Illinois. So they're not coming up to the Chicago area and vice versa. Um, so that would be one way. And then just, just being out in the, com the community that's non-legal, right? Um, letting people know what you do. So my kids go get their hair cut. I got a call just the other day from my kid's uh, barber. 
uh, someone someone referred me. Now, it wasn't my area of practice, but still, it's just those connections you're just making in your general community. And then I think another thing, I get a lot of clients now, now in these later years from, from uh, my website and, and search engine optimization. I've hired people in the past. I'm not using anybody right now, but I think I've got enough out there that I do kind of come up. Um, a lot of people online, you know, that's, I think that's what a lot of people do now. They look for their lawyers online. Um, so I get a lot of, I get a lot of people from that and I blog, I don't blog as consistently as I want to, because sometimes it's just extremely busy, but that those bloggings, I've had people reach out to me based off a blog or a video I did three or four years ago that they saw, you know, and I don't know all the algorithms. I'm not a, um, SEO specialist, but those things are very, very important. So I would definitely say having a healthy, don't, don't put all your eggs in one basket. Don't think you're just going to do SEO and that's going to be it. Um, you need to also still do, in, you know, people to people, uh, contact for being involved, like I said, in your bar associations and your community in general. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like you're, you're well diversified in terms of you know, your practice and sort of the, the growth sources and, and sources of new clients for your practice, you know, on, on the, the relationship side of things, right? I mean, I think, especially today, right? Everyone wants to see things happen very quickly. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I think hearing you talk about it and just sort of knowing, you know, building relationships generally, right? I mean, it, it sounds and it sounds like this was the case for you that you may spend some time early on building relationships and, you know, from a, you know, client perspective or a business perspective, mm -hmm. you know, you may not see any fruit from that in year one or year two, but right. in year threes and three, four, five and beyond, you, you may start to see some business coming out of it beyond just having a great relationship, which is, you know, nice in and of itself. Um, you know, and I, I think it, what would you tell folks sort of early, early on, right. Who think about, you know, well, should I spend my time here? I, I, I don't have that much time. Where do I invest? Yeah. I mean, you definitely, I mean, that's definitely something you got to think about because again, um, between, you know, family responsibilities, your, your, your the actual job part of it, you want to do things uh, or, or be part of organizations that are actually doing things or having events or, you know, maybe look at, okay, who's coming to those events? You know, is it just the same old people or do they have, you know, uh, like some of the organizations that I'm a part of, we have the Illinois Supreme Court justices coming, you know, coming to some of those events. So kind of try to think of it that way. And there was an additional thing I was going to say too about building relationships. Another thing I think that uh, especially younger lawyers just getting into it, and I know I'm not a super old lawyer, I've only been doing it 13 years, <laughs> but um is you want to give more than what's expected. So like in Cook County, we're, uh, a, it's a very large county. I don't only practice in Cook County, but that's the biggest county here in Illinois. Um, and things sometimes are a little more relaxed just because the volume, but I try to always do what we're supposed to do. Get that respect from the judges as well, because while the judges can't necessarily refer you cases, um, they definitely, if you think about going on the bench one day or, or that, that may be a possibility being a judge one day, they, those things matter. So if I'm, um, if I know that the actual rule is this and everybody doesn't necessarily do that just because it's kind of relaxed, I still do it because I want that respect and that, uh, that gets you the respect of your colleagues too, knowing that you're going to, you know, do what it, do what it is that you're supposed to do and what is technically required of you. So that's another thing to keep in mind as well. Yeah, it's all it's all you know, sort of planting seeds for future growth, yeah. right? 
you know, absolutely. It's, if you get two or three years down the road and then you think back, boy, I wish I had gone to more bar events or I wish I had done X, Y, Z. I feel like it's pretty rare, rare where you actually go to those events. And then two or three years down the road, you're sitting back and say, boy, I wish I didn't go to those events. Right. It's, it's always absolutely. the opposite. Um, and it sounds like you've been, you've been great at doing that and really built a, a diversified way to grow your practice. I mean, today, what does that look like for you about what, what percentage maybe comes through referrals or relationships versus mm-hmm. uh, SEO and, and, you know, web traffic? I would say it's about 60% web traffic, maybe 65% traffic, six, about 60 to 65% web. And then the other 30, 35% is um, relationships. And the relationships I've made for my association with bar associations and in my community, just in, in general. And when I say in my community in general, I'm saying the non-legal community, just like with your, you know, your kids' PTO or um, the soccer, the other parents at soccer meets or whatever. That that you know that makes a about thirty thirty five percent of my my case lower would I get in? Yeah, and and on the on the website, I mean, I, how long did that take to sort of start to bear fruit? I guess I feel like it's a lot like networking, or particularly with SEO when you're writing content and trying to, you know, appear at as high up as you can on on Google results. You know, that can take some time as well. So it's also an investment. What did that look like for you? Yeah, you got to be very patient. So when I first started, I definitely could not, not even the least bit, afford any professional SEO um, organization. Um, and so, again, you know, I was doing a lot of just stuff on my own, trying to read things. And, and, and at that time, it was easier for me to do because I didn't have as many cases. But as I kind of got busier, you know, at different points, I did have to hire um, SEO people or maybe some people just to do some blogs for me because I'm just too busy to do the blogs myself. But it does take time. And a lot of times I've spoken to some of my colleagues and they're like, oh, that's a lot of money to spend for something that may not uh, bear fruit until 18 months or 24 months later. But here's the thing. Or they'll say, you know, you should just do straight advertisement, straight, you know, pay-per-click kind of thing. Those things are great. But here's the thing. When you stop the pay-per-click, then your advertisement is gone. The links and the sites that were built for my SEO stay forever. So I literally still have people um, come to me off links that were built for me maybe four years ago. I'm not even with that company anymore because it's out there. It's part of the Internet now. So it has has longevity so you got to be patient i think the perfect combination would be to do a little bit of that along with maybe your traditional advertising pay-per-click have some advertisement up there but it can get you know pretty expensive so sometimes you may have to make a decision about which one you're going to do i've tried to do a couple of them um at the same time but mostly i've really pretty much stuck to seo because i feel like that's going to have the for me anyway that's been the most investment. And then sometimes people don't like those advertisements. I've heard people say they just skip the first three because it says advertisement where my thing is just, Hey, I'm just talking about something that you want to know. And then as far as your blogs, when I write my blogs, I try not to write them in a way that is selling. People don't want you to sell them. I think about myself as a consumer. I just want you to give me the information right now. I'm in the information collection stage and and maybe after I learn from you what all it takes, then I'll think about hiring you because maybe I, maybe I don't want to do all that. But you want to show your expertise. You don't want to come off in a way where you're advertising to individuals. You just want to kind of give information and then they may come back around. They may not. But I think that's very important when you're writing your content is not to be, oh, so call me today. You know, maybe something at the end like, hey, so 
you need an experienced criminal defense attorney like Anissa Jordan, but most of your article or your blog post shouldn't be about, you know, come, come hire me, hire me, hire me. They want their question answered. Like, what's going to happen? Am I going to go to jail? That's what they want to know or whatever, you know, whatever the situation is. Yeah. No, and look, and that, that is something, as you say, right? If you're, you're having a mix is important, but if you pay for advertising, you only own that space as long as you pay for it. Right. But when you write good, helpful content, you know, you own that forever. It's yours, right? You own that content. You own that thought leadership. And you know, I, lo I love the way you put it, right? Which is nobody wants to have a sort of cheesy sales pitch in front of them, right? But if you can right. give them an answer that they're looking for, you already start to build some of that trust in you as somebody who, who knows this area of the law. And if they ever need you know, help, they, they can come back and, and turn around and find you. You know, I'd love to hear about your process beyond that. So you get like 60% coming from you know, your website. Obviously, people landing on your website, reading your article is just step one. And what does right. your process look like from there in terms of, you know, communicating with that person if they do reach out to your firm yeah. and your console process? What does that look like for you from a business perspective? Yeah, so a lot of people um, will, uh, you know, call me based off those numbers. And, and surprisingly, a lot of people don't want to actually meet in person. So I do have an office and I maintain that office because I do have sometimes people who want to meet in person, but a lot of people will either do a Zoom or a Google Meet meeting or just a phone consult with me. And I use, um, I know there's a lot of different software uh, applications that lawyers can use. Um, I use a, a, a client management system that has uh, a section for me to take possible intakes in. So I get you know their name, their number, their address, um, a little bit about their case, because what happens a lot of times is when people are in that initial phase of um, trying to find a lawyer, they may call several lawyers and they may not get back to you into maybe a week, two, three, four weeks. And yeah. so putting their information into this client management software, I'm able to remember, oh, this person called me about this. This is what I quoted them. This is kind of what they had going on. So I usually will start by entering them in my client intake practice management software. Um, if they do want to set up an appointment, I will you know, set that up at a date and time that's usually convenient for them. I do most of those in the afternoon because in most days I'm in court uh, until about three o'clock or with other clients meeting about court. So I try to do those in the evening. And then once they're in, uh, we do a, a formal client intake form, gather all their information. We also do a lot of online payments now. A lot of people want, prefer to do that. They, you know, they don't want to come write a check or paying cash and it's very easy for them to do. So having some kind of client management software like like I use to, to collect those payments is, is very helpful. Um, and then after that, I sent out a, uh, another thing in my field of practice, I know in, in, in civil, I think a lot of those require a written agreement. Um, our, our field, at least here in Illinois, it doesn't require a written agreement and a lot okay. of criminal defense attorneys do not do one. However, I strongly discourage that. I do a written agreement because it not only does it protect them, but it protects me. I put things in my agreement like I have not, do not, cannot guarantee you the results of this case. That's in bold, it's underlined. I tell what I, what I, you know, what is covered, what is not covered. So it's very clear because a lot of times, for instance, let's say you do a case and the case is over, the person gets probation, but then they violate their probation. So then people, you know, the, the client is calling you saying, oh, are you representing me on the violation? Well, no, I'm not. You know, yeah. our, 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 our service concluded when you got your final disposition. Now you can hire us to do that. So I put all that kind of information, information about communication, 
okay, this is these are my general hours. Um, no, this is when you can expect a call back. Um, I put your mine are very everyone always laughs. Mine is pretty I try to think about every scenario that I've run into is is changed. Like, oh, okay, you know, I've run into this scenario. I need to add that to the agreement. Another example, a lot of times cases could start out as misdemeanors and then the state could find that there's uh, something aggravating and change it to a felony, where it's a big difference between me representing you on a misdemeanor and a felony. There's a whole bunch of different things going on. So um, I cover that. So I think having a good uh, a retainer agreement that, that spells out everything. And then I also do a welcome letter, just letting them know about, okay, how these generally, this is how your case is going to go. And this is how you can reach me. These are the best ways to reach me. I think that's very, very helpful. Um, and then we go, you know, we go from there, we enter our appearance and start work on the case. Yeah. I, I love, I love the clarity of communication that it seems you give to your clients, right? Again, yes. it's a rare case where less communication is better when dealing with the client and, and it's rare where you've communicated too much, right? I mean, particularly right. In, in terms of how you work together, right? And what they can expect because right. yeah, most folks come to you with, I'm sure, you know, very little experience with, mm -hmm. you know, how to number one, deal with a lawyer. Number two, how to deal with the justice system, how long it's going to take, what to do, how right. to act. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that, that I'm sure goes a long way to giving some comfort for your clients that, really everything is covered um, around the clock. Um, you know, I, I love, so, so you set ground rules for communication. Are you, are you answering your own phones directly or do you have somebody that can take some of that work off of you? How do you manage that? Right. Cause it's not easy to get legal work done, but also yeah. be responding to people who want your time. It's, it's a hard balance. So yes, I have in the past, I've used a lot of virtual receptionists um, to help answer the phones. I haven't been very successful finding the best companies. Um, so just do your research on that because it, it can mean disaster. If they transpose the numbers, then, mm. hey, now I've lost that client because I, I have no idea what the phone number is. Or if they're just not listening to what the person's saying, you know, or just sticking to a script, you want to have a script, but you also want someone to be able to, you know, still be able to think on their feet in the sense of, um, okay, this is not exactly what the script says, and this is what they're asking. Uh, obviously, if you can get someone actually, uh, actual person in the office, that that's great as well. But there, you know, that's another overhead cost that you have to sure. think about. So, I did have someone at some point, but one of the things you got to kind of consider is that you're not just paying them uh, their salary, but you also got to pay taxes, and there's all these other things that add on to those costs. So. If you're thinking about costs, you may want to start with a virtual receptionist. Um, at this moment, I don't have anyone, but I was just saying the other day, I might have to get someone again because when it gets really, really busy or if I'm in trial, especially, yeah. that's when things get really, really hard. Because if I have a trial week, I'm focused you know, on that person's trial. So usually I will put um, in my email auto reply like, hey, I may be slower than usual responding. Uh, to messages because I'm in trial. And I tell clients that at the beginning, like, hey, most of the time I'm going to call you back, but don't you want me to spend the utmost time and prioritize your case if it's set for trial, when it's set for trial? And they say yes. I'm like, well, if your case is not set for trial and maybe we're just going on a status date um, and you don't have an emergency, you know, you're likely not to be a priority because this person's case is actually set for trial. We're doing litigation on that. So I have to prioritize them just like I would prioritize you when your time comes. Yeah. And I love that, right? It goes back to just clear communication. I think most people mm -hmm. understand that, right? If, if they're calling yes. you and they can't get in touch with you and you've already developed 
that relationship of trust with them and they know yes. that, oh, well, it's likely because Anissa has another case that's in a critical time. And I hope when my case is in a critical time that she's not picking Absolutely. up the phone when somebody else calls. Uh, so I, I love that. Again, I think it goes back to, you know, something that, that you do, it sounds quite well, which is just clearly communicate yes. expectations and how the working relationship will go. Um, so everything you've just described also sounds like a full-time job in and of itself on top of doing the legal work. Right. So it's amazing. You're able to get it all done. You know, and I think obviously on the business side, you know, being a, an entrepreneur and a business owner, a law firm owner, uh, there's probably obvious rewards, but also challenges as well. What are some of the, the, the biggest rewards for you right now in running your own firm? I would say by far the biggest reward is having flexibility and freedom of time. Even though I said that's a lot <laughs> that I'm doing, it's just it's just not the same as if I was working for someone else, right? I have, have twin boys, they're eight years old. I love being able to say, yes, I will volunteer and I don't have to check in with anybody for that. Um, it's allowed me to explore other interests. You know, I'm a lawyer, but I have a lot of other interests. It's not the only thing I'm interested in. So um, having the flexibility uh, to to do more with my time and to be able to schedule things. And then, you know, if I to be able to say no to a case, if I'm working for someone else, I, I, I certainly can't tell my supervisor that, no, I'm not going to take that case. So just I would say freedom of time and flexibility probably is the most rewarding part about having that. And then also just giving me the confidence to know that I can start other businesses. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, I'm really into holistic health and wellness and I'm going to school to be a holistic health and wellness coach, which is totally wow, different. Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> which is totally different than what I'm doing now. But I think I wouldn't have the bravery to do that and say, I'm going to open a business doing that if I didn't already see that, hey, I can do this. And I kind of have an idea already, okay, what this looks like. And I could use the experience from that, uh, from building this firm to, to maybe doing something like that on the side. So um, I would say that's probably the biggest reward to do that. And then to just being able, which I know it sounds cliche, but to help people. I mean, it's, it's to, you know, I've had friends who, I had a friend, for example, who had an issue in Indiana. I'm not licensed in Indiana, but she had been trying to get through, trying to get through, um, and no one was returning her call. And, and it was it was a very important issue. And being able just to make a call and say, I'm attorney Anissa Jordan, open doors. I got her issue resolved in 15 minutes. And she had been wow. just being able to have that um, authority, because even though attorneys sure. get a lot of jokes about us, we're still, I, I think, still pretty much respected. You know, you still, you know, be a doctor or a lawyer. So um, being able to do that for a couple of my friends, just be able to say that and people pay attention, if nothing more, just because you're able to put attorney in front of your name. Um, so I think that's been very rewarding, being able to help people out in my personal life by having that experience and that knowledge and knowing the right words to say to make someone listen to you and like, hey, we're not playing around here. This is, you know, X, Y, Z. So I think that's been very rewarding as well. Yeah. And, and you know, on, on the flip side of that, right, I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of a lot of challenges <laughs> as well. Right. I mean, I think yeah. you could probably come up with a laundry list, but we always love to ask folks, like if there's one like hair on fire problem or challenge that if you had a magic wand, you could solve in running your firm. What does that look like for you? I think it would definitely, I would have to say, you know, the, the lack of guarantee of income. <laughs> I mean, because you don't know. I mean, it, it's, uh, I do think I'm getting to the point where I'm not scared to not, like, 
I, at the beginning, I was scared that what if nothing comes? I'm at the point in, in it that I know something is going to come. But still, you don't know how much something's going to come, when it's going to come. I've had months where I didn't make anything, you know, for the first 27 days, you know, and that's challenging because you have bills, you have this, you don't know when, if it's coming. Right. But then maybe on the last day, I made everything that I would have made for the entire month. I've had uh, times where I'm, um, and this, I, I know you said one challenge, but this is still kind of related to that is because I do work alone, um, I sometimes have had to turn cases away just because I hold myself to a certain standard. And while it was hard to do that, because that's money coming in, it's very hard to turn money away. I also don't want to get myself in trouble where now I can't do my cases properly because I'm too overwhelmed with too many cases. So that has been a challenge. A few times I've had to do that, maybe two or three times, but it's not consistent enough yet for me, I think, to, to hire someone on. But it's happened two or three times where I literally had to just turn cases away because I didn't think I could do them because I am only one person. So, yeah. Well, look, I, I, you know, it's been amazing hearing about sort of your work uh, in criminal defense and, and, you know, your, your work time as a prosecutor, your time as a defense attorney, you know, the why behind what you do and how, how impactful it is. And in particular, you know, how much emphasis you put on treating folks like people and, and communicating things clearly. And, and obviously the impact that's had for you as an attorney and then throughout your business. Um, you know, it's been amazing to hear about you as, as Anissa, the attorney and Anissa <laughs> as the entrepreneur law firm owner and then future health and wellness uh, owner as well. It's, it's amazing. You're, you're doing that as well. Um, you know, we lo- love to wrap up with, with two questions. We always like to ask folks. One is a little bit lighthearted. The other is a little bit, you know, forward looking, but uh, do you have a favorite movie of all time? Yes. The color purple. Um, I'm not sure if you heard of it before I watched sure. it for the first time when I was really young, I, sh- I probably shouldn't have been watching it. I'm not exactly sure because I was only like six, but the thing is I didn't get a lot of, there's some heavy themes in there. I do remember not understanding everything in there, but I really, really just love that movie. I've watched it millions of times. It's, it's a tie with that and Gladiator. I really like Russell Crowe's Gladiator. I've watched that lots and lots of times as well. So I yeah. don't know if it's the Gladiator or the Color Purple, but I think it's probably the Color Purple. <laughs> the Gladiator always seems to be on TV, no matter what, no matter yeah. what day or, or day of the week it is. It um, is. All right. So, uh, if people could remember one thing about you and your firm, what would you want that to be? Um, that I treated them well and treated them like a person, and I, that they were heard when they came to me, and that I worked hard for them. They had someone in their corner. Think that's what it would be i love that it's 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 short and it says so much right about how you work as an attorney and the type mm-hmm. of experience folks can expect when they work with you uh on their case well look it's been again a pleasure uh to to hear about you know your journey both as an attorney and as a business owner so you know just want to say thanks so much for coming on and sharing your story not not just with me but with everybody else who who may be listening to this who might want to follow your path, right? Might want to go out Absolutely. and start their own firm. You know, I think, I think folks can learn a lot from you know your journey. So thanks so much. Thank you for inviting me. I had a great time today. <laughs>